Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for coming out uh, to our Bad Talks tonight. This is, uh, this is kind of a, a milestone for us. It's the, uh, it is the end of our fifth full season, which means it's our 20th Bad Talk that we've done. So thank you so much for coming out and continuing to support um, our mission and what we're trying to do here. So um, for those of you uh, who I have yet to meet, my name is John Kilfoyle. Um, I own a company called United Marble, and a number of years ago, I got together um, with my friends from Kochman, Wright, and Hague, and we sat down and created Bad Talks. Bad Talks was um, meant to be uh, a, a different type of networking event. So it would be an event that was accompanied with a specific topic that's an industry issue that uh, all of us as people in the trades experience. Um, we would sit down, we'd kind of go through these, these challenges and issues that we have in our companies, and we'd try to come up with some solutions. Um, we've been very, very fortunate uh, now to be, uh, to be having these talks for, for five full years. And the way that Bad Talks um, is, is modeled is off of audience participation. Um, so I'm going to have this mic in my hand tonight. If you have a question, please raise your hand. I'll come grab you. Um, Kyle will see you, and, and we love to work audience uh, questions and, and comments into the mix here tonight. Um, the same goes for future topics and future panelists. We, uh, we thrive off of um, audience participation and suggestions. I'm sure that whatever topic you have in mind to, to discuss is, um, is, is probably a, a common challenge for, for people in our industry, and we'd love to talk about it. So there's a suggestion box right outside the door that you can just drop a note into, or you can always visit badtalks.com and, uh, and email us uh, your topic. So we have, uh, we're very excited about the, the topic and, and panelists that we've put together for tonight's talk. Um, thank you so much for coming. Kyle. Thank you, John. Um, my name is Kyle Hepner. Um, a lot of you have been here many times, and you know that already. Um, uh, we at New England Home have also been very honored to be part of the Bad Talks now for five years, and I thank you all for helping us celebrate the end of this fifth season. Um, this kind of thing is right in the center of our mission, which is to be as much a part of the design and building community as possible. And so uh, we are very happy to be part of this um, in something like the Bad Talks that we feel is a really nuts and bolts kind of way of making what we all do uh, better and more enjoyable and kind of a deeper experience in a way. Um, that being said, uh, tonight, we have a very uh, good topic, I think, to end the fifth season on because it's something that is deeply concerns everybody here. Um, we have a wonderful panel of people who have been involved in the Bad Talks for a long time um, and have been to many of them, so I didn't have to do any indoctrination uh, for this. Everybody kind of knew the drill before we even started, which was great. Uh, we're talking about quality. Um, and you may notice that one of our panelists is Paul Wright from Koshman Wright & Hague. Um, quality is kind of his thing, uh, and this is a topic that Paul had been kind of plumping for for several years now, and we finally managed to get it scheduled, and yeah, once we did... Five years. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Not that we haven't touched on it before in many ways, but we've never had it as the actual topic, and once that came up, we started saying, well, what about panelists? And it's kind of like, well, duh. Who should be one of the panelists? So um, unusually, one of the organizers is now actually speaking out loud, which is a great thing. Um, what does quality really mean in our industry? It could be quality in the design. It could be quality in the execution. It could be quality in the way you assemble your team or run your company. Uh, it would be a matter of quality on a particular job. Is there a level of quality that is the right one? Uh, is there any such thing as too much quality, for example? Um, these folks up here and all of you are going to help us discuss that a little bit and figure out how best to achieve the level of quality that is wanted in any given situation uh, or cosmically, perhaps. Um, and so alphabetical order, the people who are going to be helping us discuss this are Dee Elms, principal of Elms Interior Design in Boston. Many of you know her from these talks before. Paul Wright from Kochman Wright & Hague in Stoughton, Mass., as we already were talking about. Uh, John Mertz, 
uh, from Mertz Construction in Carlisle, uh, also a longtime audience member at these talks. And finally, David Stern of Stern McCafferty uh, Architecture and Interiors in Boston. Uh, and these are all people who deeply embody aspects of quality in their person and in their work. Uh, and therefore, we thought they would be a wonderful group to kind of facilitate our discussion tonight. Um, so with that being said, let's just sort of jump into things. Um, is there a specific level of quality that is just kind of assumed in our sector of the residential design and construction industry, uh, or maybe even more generally uh, by the people who are in this room? So are we really already starting out talking about a very specific thing, or is there a, are there more general uh, ways to approach this? I'm happy to jump in. I think one of the most challenging things is that quality, there's so many things that are defined in our industry, in our job packages of architectural drawings and specifications, but quality is not really defined, and it, its parameters are so far-reaching. And we think of, first you think of quality as being a, a product of a craft, a, a fine, finely crafted piece of woodwork or a finish or a piece of art or fabric. Uh, but the, the quality, the composition of a quality project is many parts and pieces that all come together. And there's no real chart of level of saying we want an 8.5 here, but we want a 6 there. And it's, it's a very sort of abstract element. Um, and I think there's a big leap of faith for the owners when they embark on a, say, a, it's an expensive or a high-end project, a multi-million dollar project. And they're putting all of their faith in the architect for what the quality of the work will be. And it's, it's not clearly defined. Um, so it, it, a great amount of trust goes into the process, the team, the people, the skilled laborers and workmen and, and craftspeople that you have. So um, I think the lack of definition is a challenge. And when you think about our contracts and how um, particular they are, um, the, the quality is hard to define. So it, it's, well, that's, that's a great lead-in, I think. Um, so given that kind of need for definition, um, just to start talking about projects to begin with, where does that start happening in the process? Kind of not, you know, a different person might be taking the lead in different projects. Where typically does that procedure of defining what quality should mean for this particular uh, group or this particular undertaking uh, start coming about? And anybody who wants to jump in here can, too. I, I could offer up a thought. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, quality is something that's very subjective. And um, it's, relat it's relative. So for some people, um, quality might mean one thing. For another person, it might be something very different. And I think it's always important to be able to assess when you start working with um, a new client um, to try to come to some understanding of how they see quality. Because nobody hires you. Nobody's going to hire an architect. Um, you know, we're in rarefied air. People come to architects to design custom homes. Most people don't have that luxury. And they're going to have an idea that they're coming to you because you're going to um, help them attain some level of quality, that you have an understanding about what that quality might be and how to manifest it. And it's important, I think, as a designer to be able to um, meet, have a meeting of minds with the person you're working with, the person you're building for, um, to understand what matters to them, what's their idea of quality. For some people, it could be 12-foot high ceilings and a lot of glass, um, but they could care less about expensive appliances and expensive hardware. Other people might never have lived or had the luxury of having high ceilings, and that could mean nothing to them. But to have really beautiful hardware that they touch every day could be um, critical. So having a meeting of minds and understanding, because it's a relative phenomenon, where on the scale um, you know, you, the person you're designing for sees quality coming through. Yeah. Well, Dee, 
Um, the interior designer is often the initiator in a lot of cases because of a pre-existing uh, relationship with a potential client. Does any of this resonate with you? How do you, what are your experiences with getting that conversation started? Yes, I think, I think the beginning conversation with the client is really important and whether they be a, um, a client that you've worked with in the past or a client that is new to you, I think getting to know them and understanding more about what they think is quality. Um, and then also after the understanding comes, helping educate them on what you believe quality to be. Um, and that can start by visiting a previous project and kind of showing them millwork. Maybe they've never done millwork in their home before and um, pointing out you know, different details and things like that. And then it also comes to an education process if you visit the design center and walk around and touch furniture and see furniture and explain the different pieces that kind of sum up or to explain what value can be and how it is to live with it. The complexities of just ordering a chair right. isn't the one that you see right there in front of you. That's about 60 different things that have to happen before it shows up in your house. Right. That brings up like the educational, the educating the client part, which is such a huge aspect of making this all come together. And for us, the most effective tool in doing that is bringing the client through the projects, having them look, touch, feel, experience, listen. I mean, it's sort of all your senses when they walk through a project and they're taking it all in, um, how quiet it is from the outside, what the, what the you know, all of the qualities you, you just can't get by looking at house and Pinterest. Um, so I, th I think that's a, it, and it also lets them sort of put the context of that project against their dreams and visions. So instantly there's a chance for a dialogue to start talking about all of their details by referencing the ones you're looking at. And I think also bringing them through projects that are under construction can be educational for them as well. And then, then they're better tooled to make informed decisions about how they want to spend their money and what's important to them. Well, Paul, I mean, I know, you know, given what you do with your company, um, that kind of education is an important thing with clients, uh, especially as we just touched on a little bit earlier, people who may not have experienced or lived with the level of work that they would be likely to get from the people in this room. Do you want to address that a little bit? There is certainly a, um, a mutual education that goes on in the process with, with a customer. Um, our company builds things that other people design, but we also design things ourselves and have uh, an understanding of what that sort of uh, creative design development process feels like. And it's very interesting uh, for me to um, find where the clues are for the customer's sense of quality. And sometimes it's, not, it's, it's almost never explicit. It's always a, um, a discovery. You know, one way is you know, being in their house. You can see the things that they choose. Um, it might be expressed in the clothes that they're wearing or how they wear them. Um, you know, every one of these things is, you know, the client exercising their choice about something. And so I like to be very mindful of what, you know, the story that is told by their choices and then try and tailor uh, my approach to what I've observed so that it's, um, so I can add my expertise to the mix, but it's completely dependent on their sensibility. And, and, and pulling out the quality issue uh, is, is not always clear. And, and, and one of the reasons I think that's the case is that um, a normal consumer experience, um, things that get chosen all the time are not necessarily chosen for quality. There, there are oftentimes other features. A, a good example that's changed historically is um, clothing. Clothing is a, a quick cycle uh, presence in our lives because fashions change rapidly. Nobody is looking carefully at stitching and judging. We don't even know how to judge the quality, I don't think. I mean, we, we might have a quick measure of it by saying, well, this one costs more than that. It must be a higher quality product. But I, I'm not sure that's a fair measure. Um, 
But the point I'm trying to make is that um, the, uh, discrimination about quality might be exercised with certain kinds of consumer experiences and just completely uh, immaterial to others. And so uh, a lot of what you have to do with your customer is help them learn the uh, nature of quality as it pertains to the, to the built environment and the choices that they're going to make with, with their design professional. Um, are there ever any challenges around kind of what people may think or say they want and what you feel like they would actually be happy with when they actually get it built? I mean, do you ever have people, you know, not to simplify things, but asking for kind of a, a schedule and a budget that is doable, but you know that when the thing is built that way, they're not really going to like it very much. Is that something that comes up? And if so, how do you deal with it? Yeah, I, w I would say that there's always a conversation about, um, about um, budget and um, the wish, a wish list that a person might have. And I think somehow it's our task and often it's a burden that we accept before the contractor comes around um, because that's the timing of things to try to create some idea of reality. And um, it can be based on our past experience, um, but I think it's critical that that happen early on and that you're able to ascertain um, where the where their idea of quality lies and how that is impacted by um, ideas of budget. Um, it, it unfortunately, we were talking about this a little earlier. In the it depends on the model by which you build and design. And I'm kind of old school, and I'm very happy to work in a very traditional way, but there's more in, in, a, in a process that allows for more contractor or vendor engagement um, and more of a, a team involvement early on. I think um, there, there's a lot of benefit to, um, to being able to establish budgets. Um, I don't know if that's getting to the core of it, but. I think so. I mean, does anybody else have any um kind of specific examples or thoughts to add to that. Um, I mean, it's more of a psychology thing in some ways, I think, because they're all going to spend more than they think they are anyway. But <laughs> yeah, you, you know, it's a, right? it, it, it's a, um, th there's a, there's a beauty to thinking that quality is going to exist um, devoid of the price tag. And the reality is, I, I, and, and I believe that you can build inexpensively, you can build great quality inexpensively, but I rarely see it happen. And everything that we think of as high quality costs money. And there's sort of no way around it. And we've built projects, you know, shockingly inexpensively, but I just know that, you know, if there had been an opportunity for a little more budget, the project would have been significantly better. I don't think the two, as much as it's an ideal that the idea of cost and quality could be disconnected, I, I, don't, I really don't think they can be. And I'd like to be more optimistic to say that they can be. But um, in my experience, when you have the opportunity to spend the money to get you know, a better product, a good example, often early in a project, um, usually with a contractor on board, but not always, we'll have a discussion about, say, plaster finishes. Just to use a super dumb nuts and bolts example, there's four different ways to make a plaster wall. We know them intimately. And is somebody going to discern the difference between a tape and spackle and a traditional three-coat plaster? And the cost is $3 a foot difference. It's significant. Um, and for all the contractors out there, I apologize, because maybe it's $4 different. <laughs> um, we'll get to you soon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Can I interrupt you, David? Yeah. I, because this is a very, to me, this is an interesting conversation that you need to have with your customer. So you know, you've, you've, you've listed the, the various options, and they would look to you to uh, not only speak about you know, what the range of cost is, but what, what their 
what the value added or subtracted for the to the project would be depending on each cost. So, you know, one thing that I think is really important is that when you're talking about budget and quality with with your clients, that um, you know, there's a there's a quick uh, kind of answer of like, well, what is that? What are the options? But the more important question, in my opinion, is why? Why would you do a three coat instead of just a board and tape? You know, what? Why? Be, and so the the process of educating the customer, as because they're making decisions about how they're spending their money, is uh, you know, it's a, it's a richly uh, sort of educational process, I think, and especially for customers who are not broadly experienced with doing this, and many aren't. I mean, you know, this is already a thin slice of people that do this kind of thing. So, um, and I, I, I would interject along these lines also that, that I don't think it's right to think of quality as, uh, or as budget as the enemy of quality. I think, you know, think of when somebody asks you to value engineer something. You, you do not start thinking, how can I lower the quality? I mean, at least I don't. I mean, that's not the issue. The issue is how can I simplify it? How can I reduce the labor costs? How can, you know, how can I find other design choices that won't be as costly? But nobody ever says, how am I going to lower the quality? But I would argue, Ben, that's, that's true value engineering, where you haven't adjusted the quality, you've only adjusted the price. Most times, value engineering is a misnomer, and it's scope reduction. But if you want, we did a project a couple years ago that we designed using a very expensive imported stone veneer. And um, it was beyond the, the budget. Uh, our client loved it, we loved it, it was exotic, it was special, it was coming from Switzerland. But we, working with the contractor, were able to find a stone that wasn't quite as sexy, but it was really beautiful. And it cost a third of what the other stone cost. To me, we didn't lose quality at all. Um, we maintained quality. We made a, a slight adjustment to the aesthetic. That was proper value engineering. No change in scope, no change in quality, lower cost. So I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I'm offering a nuance to the concept of value engineering, which I think is often used in a way that is, um, it's used sort of in my mind incorrectly, um, and not to be confused with scope reduction. But I think also there's a, there's a, um, there's a important piece, which is I think that as a, as a design professional or as a builder, um, you're hopefully trusted by your client to have the knowledge about the different um, possibilities and coming to say the whole concept of the plaster wall, <laughs> like it's boring, I know, but uh, it's a concrete example or, or a gypsum example. <laughs> um, but um, and this is in, in response, Paul, to what you were saying, like, you know, I want to be able to say to my client, don't do tape and spackle. It's not the right thing for a high-quality house. The walls aren't going to feel as strong. You're not going to have that smooth, you know, look to the to the to the plaster. But you don't need to spend money on a, you know, lime and gauge system. <clears throat> um, don't spend your money on that. I'll spend your money on something else. Like that's not. I want to be. If I have a fixed budget, I want to be able to be understanding how best to use that budget and let my client be. Have the knowledge that I could offer him to say, you know, this is going to look just as good, and if we can save money here, you'll be able to afford the, you know, better air conditioning system or radiant heating or whatever it is. Or the, those wonderful cabinet pulls you wanted. The cabinet pulls, right? <laughs> uh, does anybody in the audience want to interject a little bit about this kind of negotiation process versus sort of budget versus quality or budget and quality and kind of what the trade-offs are or how you play with that. Got a couple folks in the back. If, or, oh, Vaughn. Yes. Uh, one of the things that I've developed over a number of years of being involved in this industry is that I see there are three aspects to any project. There's cost, 
schedule, and quality. Those three tend to sit in a triangular fashion. There is one of those that sits at the apex of that triangle, which is a priority for the project. It is up to the client to become educated to set that priority for the project. The other two become secondary to that. So for instance, if quality sits at the top, cost and schedule sit below. If schedule is a priority, cost and quality sit secondarily to that. But in order to be able to have a client that can understand that and can make a decision as to setting that priority, it's incumbent upon those first in, being the designers, uh, to take and educate a client and understand the impact of those decisions going forward. So educating a client, again, in the instance, I had a house as a $50 million house. We had the choice of going $700,000 for Skimco plaster to $1.8 million to doing the gauge plaster system. When the client understood that there was an impact in terms of the ultimate finishes, for instance, there was less caulking going in behind the baseboard, less caulking going in behind the casings. They would lie flat because everything was done with a ground system and the like. When the client looked at that and understood that there was a significant impact in terms of the quality, he opted to go with a $1.8 million. So again, most of us that are working for those one or two percenters, you're already pre-qualified, okay, as having that knowledge but it's incumbent upon those of us to impart that upon the clients and let them know these are your options, these are the impacts that go towards those options. So I think a big part of it is about educating the client in terms of expectation and delivery. Because I've got this uh, analogy, it was used years ago, that you have expectation and you have delivery. If the two come together, okay, there's never a problem. If they're offset, either delivery needs to come up or the expectation needs to drop. Because when the two meet, then we have a successful project. We have a client that pays the bills, ultimately, because we're all looking to get paid what we do, and we have future commissions. So I think that idea of educating the client, because we're looking for an informed consent out of them, that doesn't happen until they know all of their options. So educating the client, as to what the quality is, how that impacts them, and those of us who are builders, those of us who are designers, those of us who are interior designers, uh, cabinet makers, whatever, explaining that quality and what the quality impact is to the client. Because I also believe, and, and I'm trying not to monopolize this conversation, so I'll wrap this up here, but there are there are three different levels of clients. You have those clients who have never done anything, those clients who have done one or two projects, those clients who have done multiple projects. The clients who have multiple projects, they're great to work with because they already get the drill. Those who have never done a project, you know, their expectations off the wall. So it's in educating the client as to what can happen and what the impact of their choices are. That's a great point, Vaughn. And I think uh, that idea of kind of communicating and managing expectations across the team and with the clients is something we're gonna be kind of moving into a little bit here. Um, I mean, so far we have been talking a little bit about kind of the beginning of projects and working with the clients to get things started and the design process to a certain extent uh, and how that aspect of things affects quality. Uh, maybe kind of moving along as our little mythical project gets going um, into kind of assembling the team uh, and finding the right people to work on it and how quality gets kind of managed and communicated through that process. Um, and so maybe we could start with, again, looking at the people who start typically by making those teams, kind of how do you go about putting together the right group of people or finding the right group of people to produce the result that is wanted? And anybody who wants to jump in, particularly Dee and John, who haven't said a lot so far. <laughs> um, I mean, starting the project, if I think that the most important thing is to look at each project and kind of figure out who the best partners would be, because we all want the best for our client. Um, and 
making those selections based on um, <coughs> on past experience and people that you know could do a good job. Um, I think that for partners that you've worked with in the past, you obviously have a personal experience, um, and that's helpful. But also, I mean, we have great tools now for we can go on the website and see the work that we've done. We could talk to references. And I, I just think that at the end of the day, to find the right partner to partner on the job would be the best thing. Right. John, is that kind of how you see things also? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll jump into the money part of this a bit because, um, you know, the, the architect is forced to, to make their job or is seeking to make their job a reality. And so when it's sends out to bid, you know, how do you put that team together of builders that you're selecting? And, of course, you could pick all the very best builders on the planet that you know of, but you might want to have a couple other in the mix just so the thing doesn't kind of go off charts price-wise and so then the inequalities that would never happen with this group right well then then you have some inequalities that are happening in what's being bid and what the quality of the product and or the process of how you get there um, so it's a challenge for us where we know we would always like to bring in the very best of the very best but we also have to make decisions along the way about who will meet our level of quality to execute the job correctly because we want to win the bid, and it's a competitive business, and it's tight out there. And I, I think more times than not, the the architect is given a budget, and the job is designed, and it's somewhat north of that when the bids all come in. The question is, is it 10% north of that or 50% north of that? And then what happens after that? And then the sort of regrouping, the value engineering, engineering scope reductions, re-estimating, all of that. Um, so right out of the gate, you're already under a fair amount of pressure um, for the things that are dear, which is the quality and the craft, and but the, we still we don't want to reduce the scope or the vision or the design intent. So I, I think it's a tough challenge for us as builders to balance the ultimate quality, the ultimate experience, working with our subcontractors and vendors, but also bringing in the people that will assure we can win the job and execute the work. Yeah. Well, when it's I mean, kind of when you're dealing with firms that you already know and with whom you've already worked or you know their reputation for a long period of time, it's relatively clear, presumably, what level of quality you might expect from them. Uh, when you are either brought into a project where you're working with people you don't necessarily know or you're putting together a team but you've got some players that you're not that familiar with, how do you go about figuring out whether they will produce at the level of quality you're looking at, or what are the signs that kind of let you know how this company is and whether they will be a good team member? Um, I'd like to uh, tell a story to, in answer to that question. Um, a couple years ago, we had an old client of ours who we've worked for many times um, has a, a condo in, in Miami. And we had done work for him in Manhattan, and we knew him very well. Um, and he asked us to get involved in his apartment in Miami. And so a contractor needed to be found, um, and he had a few connections that led him to this particular individual. And we went down to see his work and you know, interviewed him and talked and so on. Um, the work was really deplorable, and it was not up to the standard. I mean, I, I have to tell you, having worked a fair amount in New York and Miami, the level of quality that we see here is extraordinary compared to what we've been exposed to in those environments. Uh, and, uh, but that's another story. So we go to Miami. We meet with Giuseppe. He's a nice guy. He seems uh, eager. Um, the workmanship is pretty dreadful. And, but uh, he's struck a chord with the homeowner, and uh, the homeowner asked me to pursue talking to him further about getting it done. So we asked him to produce some budgets. Um, he would send them to me, and I would look at it, and I'd say, Giuseppe, this isn't enough money. We're not going to, this is not what we're after here. Add some money. He probably thought he had died and gone to heaven, but, <laughs> uh, but the real, point of this story is that he did an exquisite job. And he, and I think the reason that he did an exquisite job is that he, he had met a standard in his marketplace that was 
the standard, if you will. And he, he gathered subs that would meet that standard and he got the work done. And this was an opportunity for him, I think, to do something that everybody aspires to do, which is excellent work. You know, nobody wants to do a bad job. Nobody chooses low quality. But the question is whether you have the opportunity. And, and he was given the opportunity in this case, and he absolutely hit a home run with it. It was impeccable quality. And as long as he, he knew that that was uh, not only expected, but supported. And so uh, I also think that you know, quality is aspirational for a lot of people. It's not, it's not just a level that you're forced to hit. You know, everybody aspires to the opportunity to do wonderful work. And he, he, I never would have, you know, I counseled my client against hiring him because I thought the work wasn't up to standard. Um, but we hired it anyway, and we were wrong. He, he, you know, all he needed was the right opportunity. <coughs> so that's, that's nice to know. Um, I kind of a question for the room, I think, which is kind of the flip side of what we were just talking about. If you find yourself up for a potential job or joining a team with people you don't know, how do you go about making clear to your partners or your potential partners kind of what level of quality you and your team represent? Anybody want to weigh in about that, Peter? Right. What was the question? Sorry, I'll answer the question. <laughs> uh, well, the question is, when you are getting involved in a team with people who don't know you and your firm, how do you make the case for the quality that you will put forth? Uh, or how do you make it clear that you will be a good member of this team? Well, I, I think that's a great question. The, you know, I, I think one of the things you have to do is up front be very clear about the kind of quality you expect to provide and what that's going to cost because the fact of the matter is most people don't want to pay for that anymore um, and I think that's one way you would do it I think another way is uh, we certainly uh, you know over the years you vet you know if, the, if we're talking about high-end residential which I think a lot of this conversation is we, you know, we have certain people who are vetted who understand how to pr provide very high quality services for whatever it happens to be. Um, and we always try to work with a tried and, you know, proven team that we've worked with before um, because that kind of, you don't want to mess with coordination. You want to have that all in place. Alfonso, you probably have something more to add. Um. Well, if you don't know the, the parties involved, I think one thing that's important is who, who's the leader? Because I, I have, I've had the experience where I, you know, the, the, as David mentioned, the traditional setup is it's the architect comes in first, right? And then maybe interior designer, landscape architect, and then it's the builder. Nowadays, it could be totally turned on its head. So if it's the builder first or the landscape architect, whoever, somebody's got to make the decisions. And I think it's important to try to clarify roles and responsibilities up front and who's who's the leader and that I think that will help clarify some of the quality questions right uh, John I mean who is the leader and who is actually the leader which is often sort of the builder or the contractor ends up taking leads in some way even when somebody else has initiated the process uh, just from a management standpoint right yeah, sort of from different subcon ideas, subcontractors and things like maybe that. Maybe roundabout way of answering your question, but part of the interviewing process, vetting out people, is getting to know them, going to see their work, experiencing it, talking to people, you know, learning as much as you possibly can. Um, there, there's no replacement for that sort of experience. Um, so basically the same thing that you're trying to do when you educate the client. We're, it sounds like we exactly the same, same drill. Thing. Exactly. Um, I think another part that you brought up in a conversation on the phone the other day was the, the concept of reaching out and listening, and listening to the people on the team, listening to the subco. What about the, you know, 70-year-old guy that's putting up Venetian plaster? You know, he probably has something to teach you if you're willing to listen. If you walk onto the job site and you're 
you know, you're driving the ship and everything's crack, crack, crack. You're never going to hear his opinion. You're never going to learn anything. So there's, as much as, you know, great design and being developed to a, a, a thorough, well thought through plan is very important to quality construction. I think the interaction in a lot of our collectively better jobs ha happen when the managers and the different team members are allowed to have input and they're leaned upon. Um, to bring their expertise, their opinion, their views. So there might be a ring leader, but the ring leader to do the best job is leaning on all the team members to bring everybody's talent together, and it requires listening. So, Well, that actually brings up a thing kind of in terms of site meetings or just project planning or even upfront team meetings. Is quality something that is typically discussed as a line item, or is it something that's just kind of assumed in what you're all doing? I mean, how do you bring that into the conversation? I, I could offer up a thought on that. I, I sort of feel like if we're in a position where we're having a conversation about um, quality, that's almost a priori a problem. Because I want to work only with people who see quality the same way that I do. And not that, I'm, not that I always have that luxury. Um, we hope to, but, and our aspiration is to. But there's, um, there's, if there's a disconnect about what what, how one defines quality amongst the team, the designers and builders, then that's something that needs to be addressed. Because uh, you know, for us, that's really not, oddly, a conversation that we have a lot. There's an assumption, and we're only going to be working with builders who see quality the same way that we do. Um, the quality of the execution, that is, because there's a whole other range of thinking about quality, um, which isn't necessarily caught up in the contractor's craft, but caught up in the architect's craft. But I do believe, as John said, that for us, our craft starts with listening, first and foremost. And if there's a, um, if you're able to listen um, and to absorb and to empathize, then you're able to communicate. And if you're able to communicate, then you have a successful project. If you're not able to communicate, then you're not going to ever have a successful project. Um, and I think, again, that starts with listening, empathizing, being open. You know, I might have been doing this for a long time and have my way of doing it, but there's never a project that I'm going to walk into where I'm not going to be open to learning something from somebody who's doing, you know, I'm a, I'm a, um, I'm a, um, I'm a fox. I'm not a hedgehog. But when I go into a job site, I'm meeting um, a lot of hedgehogs. And they know their trade really well. So if you're willing to listen to the hedgehogs in the world um, and empathize with them and absorb lessons that they can teach you, it makes you a better communicator. Um, Very much like John's Venetian plasterer. Yes. A few minutes ago. Um, well, since we're moving a little bit onto the dark side, as it were, um, let's go ahead and kind of follow up on that. Uh, are any of you, do you have any kind of experiences, kind of real life experiences to share of times when quality might have become an issue at some point during a job um, and how you kind of dealt with that? how you figured it out, communicated it, got it fixed, um, sort of nitty-gritty kinds of things. Uh, this would also apply to anybody in the room, if somebody wants to jump in. Am I up? Gary. OK, so it's not just visual, right? Quality is not visual. We want to build a sense of permanence into what we do. Most of the times, there are things behind the scenes that a client cannot appreciate if we're biscuiting miters and door frames, window casings, or we're coping, coping corners and crown moldings versus a miter, or, and this is for Paul too, the substrates that we decide to use under the veneers or the veneer choices that we might make in guiding a client. So they might not appreciate that or understand it, but the trades folks, the folks in this room, will understand, and that does come with a cost. So when we talk about the cost factors, and I also like to look at it as apples for apples in what the competition might be bidding versus us. So we need to educate the client but it's, the, to me, the behind-the-scenes details that we execute that a client will not know if that corner is biscuited or not or if that is coped or not up in the corner. Just, just make sure we understand that going in, and hopefully we're explaining that to the client and what they're getting for the end result with the dollars as well. So 
just curious to how the panel addresses those types of things. I think we have a certain level of expectations on how we're going to execute things that we, we won't go below. So if we have to get costs down or find economy or get the schedule tighter or shorter, we just won't provide options that are below the water bar that's set. And it's sort of, it's somewhat assumed. It's again, the not really qualified quality of that. But we, we you know, we're, we're not willing to do stuff without the proper prep. And you know, for example, we're not going to miter inside corners. If somebody's mitering inside corners on a crown on our job, then the crown's coming down until they know how to clip a corner. I mean, plain and simple. So the, the client, I think we need to explain that to the client, but they also know that, that, that there isn't a place below that. <laughs> not working with the team. Right. Well, Dee, actually, from the designer's point of view, uh, I think this kind of nitty-gritty gets into something, because in for a lot of people in the interior design field, you know, your markups and a lot of your fees on what you do are going to be based on servicing things like specking how a particular chair gets upholstered and how the fabric is applied and all of the sort of little bits and pieces that go into ordering these things. Is that something that becomes part of this conversation with the client to kind of help them understand what is needed and why you have to go through these, why it, you know, the chair that they see in Janus AC is not the chair that they're actually going to get. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that one good example might be like draperies. You know, there's a lot of different ways you can do draperies and, um, and all the details make a big difference. So educating them on why they'll be happy with this or that it has to be a layering treatment or which workroom you're working with. Yeah, which workroom you're working with. And, and that's kind of a, you know, a partner situation um, where you've worked with the workroom in the past and you know their attention to detail and they understand. And if there are situations that can become problematic with windows, um, that you have a good partner that you can work out details with. Anybody else? There's a, uh, there's a dimension to this conversation that has, uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about um, how, uh, how quality is uh, communicated and how it's affecting the relationship to, the, to the, the owner or the person who's actually paying for the process. But all of us who have businesses have our own uh, set of quality standards for doing our business. And you know, and it, it may be workmanship issues like coping an inside corner, or you know, or, or biscuiting the casings. Um, and I would add that the customer may not appreciate it the first year, but they're going to know about it eventually. <laughs> so it's like that's that's kind of another issue that 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 quality should be um, it should be assessed as, as life cycle costing, <clears throat> and and that's that conversation isn't often had. Uh, so, you know, if we build something that's going to last uh, twice as long and only cost 30% more, we're good. Well, not usually, but, you know, it doesn't always sell the deal, but it's honestly, it's, it's a way of looking it's at value. it. It's value. It's value. Assuming the clients want it to last. Yeah, or assuming or they do. to be there that's that right. long. Yeah. Well, Paul and I are doing a project now for an old client of ours that we did a major renovation on over 25 years ago. And they, they're sort of a unique client that they, they have no kids in the house and no pets, and they're very clean. <laughs> but the house, it, the kitchen looks amazing. Yeah. It's 25 it's years old, and yeah. it looks yeah. perfect still. Yeah. And there's curved work and veneer work and all sorts of stuff. But, yeah. and, and so they, they're so happy with the product that it's just sort of they ask us in to do things. They had us design collectively. And price really isn't a, we tell them what it costs, and we're fair, and they trust us. And, yeah, that goes a long it's way. It's a great relationship. Yeah, and it ends up producing quality work. Well, you, you touched on this a little bit, Paul, uh, but I, again, this affects everybody in the room. Speaking of within your own companies, how do you create sort of a culture of quality or how do you communicate as a leader uh, or embody the level of work that you expect everybody in the company to live up to and be part of? Uh, and how do you make that happen reliably with all of your employees uh, and for the builders and contractors here with all of your subcontractors? Because that's another kind of big topic. Uh, almost everything you do is uh, a communication of your value of quality. 
whether it's the quality of your graphic communication, whether it's the quality of your um, interactions with your coworkers, the quality of the way you talk to your customer and listen to them. Um, everybody in the company sort of notices where these levels are. In my company, uh, not a day goes by when somebody in the shop doesn't say, I'm not sure this is, is this going to be okay? And it's, and it's not just me deciding. He, it might, might be somebody else that's being asked. It's like, is this, which side of the line is this on? And it might be the quality of a veneer you know, or a wood figure. It might be uh, an idea they have about how they're going to do the joinery. But the decisions that get made are, are communicated through the company. And the, the most powerful communication is when something goes awry. Something is rejected. Something gets all the way through finishing and is ready for assembly or delivery, and somebody says, this, isn't, this is not good. And everybody in the company is like, <gasps> what, you know, what, we've all invested in, a, in something that's getting rejected. You know, by the time it gets to the end of the line, you've spent a lot of money on something that's not going to the job site and has to start over. And those are powerful moments. And, you know, and, and usually when there's a huge investment, you know, one of, the, one of the, the decision makers for the company has to weigh in on it. And my habit is like, reject it. Because that may cost us a lot of money in this example, but the bar for meeting the standards has been maintained wonderfully under those conditions. You know, people like to, to, to know where that is. Because anybody that, you know, works in any of our companies has to know where the standards are. And it's, it's, it's a moving target, and it's usually not an explicit set of rules or specifications. Uh, it's, it's kind of a company culture feature. Uh, got a few out in the audience. We'll get Gary brought up about unseen things. Um, something that I think everyone's sort of walking around and what people might mean is that the quality of the process between different companies and different organizations can be quite different. So it's how, how people do things. Why do you choose builder A over builder B? What do we bring, you know, or what does a builder bring? It's about process, right? And I would think you'd say that as architects, as tradespeople, why do you pick one person over another? It might be that one mason calls you back the next day or the, or the same day, and the other guy takes a week, and that just gets somebody upset. Something else earlier on, um, I, I hear a lot about you know, we're talking about quality of, of things and what the architects and builders value of quality. Um, I was trying to think about the home, what the homeowner is what I would think ultimately matters and what their perception is. So for example, <clears throat> even on, with people with potentially could spend whatever they want, they might not value certain things. Okay, I'm a window guy. It's, it's not unusual to see someone not want to spend $5,000 on a window, but they'll spend 15000 on drapes. And they're on the ocean, but that doesn't matter because whatever, it's a window, but I want my beautiful drapes. And that's fine, and that's what the client's value is. And I think understanding where that is is, is pretty important you know, when, when we're talking with a homeowner or an architect or a builder. Uh, so they can, you know, everyone can be on the same page with, hey, what is this client value? Uh, John, we've actually got a question up here in the front row, if we could. Yes, it's not a question. Or a comment in the front row. Yeah. So what's the video? Yeah, one of the companies that work for, we had the question of, um, you know, what is the quality standard? And uh, it's a long-standing company that's been around for a while. We finally got them to sit down and they put a minimum standards together. Um, and I still use that to this day. Um, and we walked through and, um, you know, it was very helpful and it was very comprehensive. And it went from excavation through foundation through frame through finish um, and you know like I said I, I still use it to this day because what the comment was was you know Charles likes it this way and so we'd all go well Charles what do you want he goes well, I don't do it that way I do it this way so we finally put it in writing and then in theory we all would use it and like I said I still use it to this day and I find it is a very helpful tool so that was just something in the past that I yeah, found it is helpful to know. Um, Rob Uh, 
I'm listening to this, and I think one of the, uh, we're talking about a lot of definitions of quality, but one, one big one, I think, is the quality of life. Uh, a lot of decisions that are made in a home are based on, you know, after you get to, as we all said, everybody gets to know the homeowner and so forth. And, you know, what, what matters to them to make their quality. Everybody, everybody wants to make their life better and quality. And, uh, of course, one thing that's near and dear to me is the home technology field. And I think home technology has become so important. And to John's point, I mean, it's an educational thing. You mentioned education. And a lot of people are not cognizant of what the different things are with home technology. But I'd just be interested if anybody has a, excuse me, a comment on uh, the, the, the home technology today of, of lighting control and shade control and all these type of things is becoming more important to the higher net worth people than it was a few years ago. And I just think that's all part of the quality process, uh, along with all the good things everybody's been saying. All I have to say about that, <laughs> if you're going to do roller shades, figure it out at the beginning. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say about it. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think obviously it becomes part of the whole kind of uh, menu of things that go into these projects, uh, which does seem to get more and more complex over time. Uh, and therefore, whoever is managing the project and doing the design has more and more pieces that require education for the clients as well as all of the coworkers. So in a sense, it gets put back on that leader that Alphonse was talking about earlier. Um, I, I, I'd like to see the client get engaged with making these decisions about the <coughs> IT aspect of their house because it, it, you're sort of I'm a little gun shy to push too hard for a certain thing because three months later you could buy something that works twice as well for a third the cost and it's it's just an ever-changing market and um, it needs to be very specific to what the owner's you know background and desires are so it's it's a tough one to get back to your question though it's a it's a tough one to really direct people Carl, may I yeah. just jump in jump in that's quickly. what you're here for I wanted to respond to your um, previous question about how one maintains um, a certain standard of quality um, in their team, in their office. And I can speak to my own experience in our studio, um, which is different than some of the experiences I had coming up through the ranks. But for us, uh, which is a discussion for another day, but for us, the the key thing is, um, and we sort of have a mantra that if you don't draw it, it's going to be a problem. So for us, everything we do, we draw. And we draw everything, and we draw probably more than we need. And then when we're done, we keep drawing. Because that's our only way in to understanding a design and making sure that, it's, that it has integrity and that ultimately as we develop drawings for other people to look at that they're integrated and they make sense and they reflect norms and standards of how one actually builds. So for us it's all about grit and perseverance and drawing it and looking at it harder and harder and not necessarily taking no for an answer. And if there's something we impart on the people in our studio, it's there, there's not just one way. You have to draw it and you'll find other ways. Um, and I always like to comment, that, you know, my partner Diane has this thing that where she, um, she and I mentioned this to you once, she uh, feels very uh, strongly that she never wants to hear a contractor say, um, what do you mean? Uh, uh, this is how I always do it. And for, that's, that's like a negative for us because, you know, we want to understand how things are done so that we can reinvent and make it our own and through drawing be able to communicate it to the people that are building it. So that's one way for us, I think, of understanding how to maintain a sense of quality and impart it onto the people in our studio and then ultimately be able to communicate it to, um, to the people who are gonna build it. Right, well that implies that the listening you were talking about earlier needs to go both directions. So you're yeah. listening to the people you work with and who translate your work into reality and vice versa in a way. Um, we're kind of getting toward the end of the time, so um, 
I will just kind of ask our panelists, each of you, to come up with a little thing. If you had, you know, one or a small handful of what you see as the most important takeaways or very practical things that the people in this room can be thinking about or ought to be doing to kind of make sure that the quality of what they do is right or that the communication happens properly or that the team gets put together properly or whatever you see is the most important little nitty-gritty bits to concentrate on, what would those be for you um, going back out into the world after tonight? Um, in no particular order. I know this is hard for anybody, but whoever wants to jump in first can. But you will all have to say something sooner or later. Um, I'll start. Um, I love being the teacher here. <laughs> so I think that you get hired for your style and kind of the design work that the client has seen. But what they remember is the execution and the quality. That's a good point, actually. You know, I have this sort of maybe simple faith that if the work that you do is consistently high quality, the, the market will find you. And that there is no benefit to, to doing less than the best. And th the other thing about that is that um, if you work in an environment where there is an uh, atmosphere of constant improvement, that the notion that quality is always out of reach. It's, it's the next discovery, you know, it's the, it's the next invention. Um, then, you know, quality isn't fixed. It is, it's, it's, it's an aspirational kind of element. And, and, and anybody that either designs and or makes things has that sense about it in the process. They always do. That was greatly articulated, Paul. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. We're following right on that. Go for it. I mean, to maintain that, it's passion. I mean, I, you've got to be passionate about creating and wanting to build, and for me, being a maker. And it's, you know, that never changes. And so the same thing that led me to want to build things when I was a kid, it, and it's still there, the passion. So just tireless work and effort and commitment. And I, I think in some cases, too, we kind of put sensible decisions and economical or money-driven decisions aside sometimes and just make the decision for quality because it's a standard that we want to maintain and have be associated with our culture and our group. And your name. In your name. So um, I, I think that sums it up. Absolutely. And David? What was the question? <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I guess for us, or if there's a takeaway, um, it would probably be caught up in the value of invention and that, um, that quality, has, quality is relative and it has many different, it's a tetrahedron, it has many different heads. And um, the one thing, you know, we trust our builders to deliver, you know, uh, if I'm gonna d design, um, a millwork package, I'm going to want to work with a millworker to help me figure it out. I don't know everything. But what I do know is how to invent. That's, that's what I have. That's it, what's in my toolbox. Um, and that's the quality that I think we can bring to a project. Um, that's what we look for, is to find something new and special and delightful um, given, you know, given an opportunity. Um, so yeah, I think invention tied up with quality. Absolutely. No, that's all great. Um, I know in a re certain respect we've been preaching to the choir tonight uh, because I don't believe there is a single human being sitting here uh, who is not deeply committed to doing the best possible work you can. And I know that's why all of you even come to these things. Um, so that being said, I do thank you all for coming to kind of explore this topic with us. Um, even though you live it every day, it never hurts to bring these things out in the open and kind of share. Um, with that in mind, I wanted to thank you also for helping us close out our fifth year of the Bad Talks and remind you, as John did at the beginning, that um, Cindy and Paul and John and I will be meeting several times over the summer 
to start discussing topics for next year. And so if you have ideas uh, that have grown out of tonight or out of anything you've heard or seen us do before or aspects of the industry that we haven't touched on yet that you think would be important to discuss, I hope you will drop one of us a line and let us know because all of that planning happens between now and the beginning of September. Um, so this is a perfect time for suggestions to come in. Uh, that being said, uh, I thank these four wonderful people up here for sharing their thoughts and insights and wonderful eloquence with us. And I believe that brings year five to a close. And I hope you all have a wonderful summer, and we will see you next fall. Thank you. Thank you.